Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Michael Butterworth and I'm joined as usual by Dieter Renkin, Editorial Director of Racing News 365. Dieter, welcome to the show. Uh, let's start with the weekend's French Grand Prix. Now, Max Verstappen took his seventh win of 2022, but unfortunately we were robbed of what was shaping up to be an intriguing battle between him and Charles Leclerc for the victory. How did you enjoy the race? Well, I mean, I, I thought the race for the sort of swan song in France uh, was actually fairly um, alive. You know, I, I had had fears coming into this race based on, on Paul Ricard's um, previous history that it either throws up an absolute stonker or, you know, you sort of die of boredom. Um, in this particular case, it sort of threw up uh, certainly... Uh, a very lively race, which I, I certainly enjoyed. Uh, yes, you're right. We were robbed of a spectacle at the front. However, you know, there was some good good racing all the way down the field. And I'm, I think that is both a credit to the, um, uh, the new regulations and also, I think, um, a, a sign of the sort of talent that we have on the grid. It, it really was, if we look at it all the way down down the, the order, there was, there was some pretty good racing. We should never focus solely on the front. You know, the uh, the midfield battles, the tail end battles are equally enthralling. Well, there was a lot of action uh, in the mid-pack, but uh, it's impossible to talk about the French Grand Prix without talking about that mistake from Charles Leclerc, spinning out seemingly under no pressure on lap 18. The big question is for me, does Charles Leclerc, he's obviously a very, very quick driver, we know that, but does he make too many mistakes? Because I'm thinking now of Baku in 2019, of Austria, of Italy, of Bahrain in 2020, of Monaco in 2021, and now this. And Imola this year, of course, as well, yes. um, in the closing stages. So absolutely, Michael, you, you're correct that there are question marks about his fallibility under pressure. Um, of that, there is no doubt. Um, on the flip side, I've seen him put in some very, very gritty races under adverse conditions. So again, you know, I think that we need to give them the benefit of the doubt, particularly in view of the fact that there seems to be an undercurrent of feeling that somewhere along the line, the, the throttle response of the Ferrari is not quite what it should be. I'm certainly not implying, although I have heard team bosses suggest it, I'm certainly not implying that there's anything illegal or or um, dodgy about it, but they seem to be doing something with the throttle which makes it particularly difficult to control that particular car. You know, we've seen it with, with Carlos Sainz. He's also had some offs um, under difficult moments, yes, but again, he's, he's also gone off. I'm wondering whether there isn't a drivability issue with that Ferrari as well. You know, what Charles said yesterday was that the car was twitchy all weekend, and in that sort of heat, um, and that sort of pressure, um, uh, it was very difficult to keep concentration. And I'm wondering whether just a slight, slight dip in concentration, the slightest dip with a very, very sensitive throttle and a twitchy car sort of sends him into the barriers. Well, there was talk when he crashed that it was some sort of mechanical issue. Obviously, he had a bit of uh, he had some throttle complaints last time out in Austria when he won the race. But he was very, uh, very unequivocal afterwards and saying that, no, it was my mistake. And he didn't blame the car at all. Uh, that's that's quite correct. I mean, I'd, I'd ask him a question in the um, in the media pen after the, the incident. And as you say, he was absolutely clear that this was his mistake. 
But one does wonder whether or not uh, Ferrari had sort of spoken to him in the meantime. Um, I realize that that's a suspicion only, but but ultimately it was a bit of a suspicious um, um, incident. Well, from one Ferrari to another, because Carlos Sainz on his way to P5 once again seemed to be overruling Ferrari with pit strategy. They called him in late in the race for, for a stop, just when he seemed to be about to overtake Sergio Perez for P3. Uh, he made that move stick, uh, but then they called him in a couple of laps later for his stop. He had to take a five-second penalty as well uh, for an unsafe release earlier in the race. He emerged in P9 with just about 10 laps to go, managed to get back to P5 by the end. But should Ferrari have just kept him out, even on those worn tyres and even with that five-second penalty, to try to get P3 or maybe even P4? We, of course, don't know the full extent of the data at that stage in the race. You know, what his degradation was, how much tyre wear he had left. Let's not forget he had a five-second penalty to take. Yes, it could be argued that could have been added at the end of the race, but we don't know whether he would have got there. And, you know, the teams have got all the data. We sit in the the, the comfort of the media centre or in your case, the lounge or wherever you watch the race and our, you know, our listeners and readers um, are likewise, whereas only the team has got the full data in front of them to make the calls. And very often we have a look at it and we think that was the daftest of calls and yet later on it transpires that there was no other choice. So, yeah, again, I think that we need to give Ferrari the benefit of the doubt. They had all the data. There was a five-second penalty looming. Uh, yes, the, tight, the field was very tight at the time, so we don't know exactly how far the five-second penalty and uh, degraded times would have dropped Carlos down the, the order. Well, let's move on to Red Bull now and Max Verstappen, who took his seventh win of the 2022 season, a 63-point lead he now has over Leclerc in second place. After the race, as you might have expected, he was playing down the, the title talk. But realistically, is this his championship to lose now? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it has been for about the last three races. Uh, you know, the I think that Max is... I I doubt that he's peaking, but he's certainly reaching the peak of his powers. And, um, you know, the Red Bull seems to be almost untouchable. Yes, it was only a front row, not a pole position car. But ultimately, one has to look at the all-round package. I do believe that it is the best car on the grid right now. I do believe that Max is the best driver on the grid, certainly with that equipment. And, you know, under the circumstances, he's effectively unbeatable. We are 12 races in. Uh, Red Bull have won seven uh, with Max and one with Checo. You know, that's a 66% strike rate. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that car. I remember James Hunt used to say that uh, once a driver has won that first title, there's a a pressure that's lifted from off their shoulders and they often drive even better in the year after that. Can you see something like this happening with Verstappen now? Absolutely. We see it with drivers all the way through their careers. Once they get the first point, they sort of move up a gear. Once they get the first podium, they move up another gear. Once they get their first win, they move up a third gear. And once they get their first title, they're sort of in, in, in fourth gear. And, you know, I think we see that with Max all the way through. Well, let's talk about Mercedes now, because uh, they're still winless in 2022, but they had their best result of the season so far. Lewis Hamilton finishing second and George Russell finishing third. Can they win races or at least challenge to win races before the season is out? Because we can see a definite uh, improvement from the beginning of the season to where they are now. 
Uh, we can see an improvement, but to answer your question, I doubt very much that they'll win a, a race on pure merit. Um, in other words, it would need three or four or five cars ahead of them to either uh, retire or hit trouble. We saw that again yesterday. Let's not forget that Charles was in the lead and crashed. Let's not forget that Carlos had started from the back, then had to take a five-second penalty through no fault of his own. You know, factor those into the equation, um, and let's assume the two Ferraris had finished, and, you know, Mercedes would not have been on the podium. Um, it's that simple. We know that, that Checo Perez was sort of semi-asleep after the restart of the, uh, the second VSC. Um, so, you know, again, uh, one has to question whether Mercedes are really there or that we are falling prey to the euphoria of the British media. I don't believe they are. I believe they've done a sterling job in playing catch-up, absolutely. I do believe that Lewis is, is driving very well. Uh, George, of course, is absolutely no criticism of. But frankly, as an overall package, unless the cars ahead hit some form of trouble, they're not even podium contenders, let alone genuine uh, victory contenders. Well, moving a little further down the grid now, there's been some rumours lately over the future of Sebastian Vettel. There, there were suggestions that he might be uh, linked with McLaren, which he himself dismissed. But there's been talks that at the end of this year, he might actually just hang up his helmet and leave F1. What do you think he's going to do? Um, I'm inclined to to go along with the fact that um, he, he will probably retire. You know, he's he's looking more and more unhappy. Um, you know, I saw him in the motorhome on Saturday and I walked in and I greeted him. And there was just this sort of, um, uh, there was this air of, of, of discontent. I think that he's reached the, the natural end of his Formula One career. Um, and he's going through the motions right now, and I think he'll be out of there at the, at the end of the year. Regarding McLaren, I mean, these rumours sort of kept rearing their heads. Um, you know, let's not forget that he'd worked with Andrea Seidel at, at BMW when, when uh, Sebastian came into Formula 1 back in 2007-2008. Um, Andreas was with the team in the engine division, and he obviously knew uh, Sebastian from there. Uh, so these rumours sort of rear their head all the time. Um, first of all, it presupposes that McLaren could could actually um, have an open seat. And you know, I'm hearing that that Daniel Ricciardo's contract is kind of watertight, so they'd have to buy him out of that. Would one really want to buy one driver out of a contract to stick another one in who's sort of in the twilight of his career? That I don't think is the McLaren way. Yeah, there were rumours, uh, obviously, Daniel Ricciardo's had a very tough year. There were rumours that uh, he might be leaving the team, uh, either jumping or being pushed by the end of this year. He scored points today and uh, he actually took to Instagram a week or two ago to dispel any rumours about uh, his future at McLaren, saying that he was committed and that he was eager to help the team improve. So it, it, it looks like the, the, the option to end Ricciardo's contract was on Ricciardo's side rather than McLaren's. And it sounds like he's got no interest in doing that. Well, yeah, but let's not forget that the the value of a contract is actually the price that one puts on getting out of it. And uh, fundamentally, you know, he would say that, wouldn't he? You know, he's hardly going to go on Instagram and say, hey, guys, McLaren, make me an offer. I want to leave. So, you know, I'm I'm always cynical when I hear the hear and read these sort of rumors. But but ultimately, I do believe that it's a pretty watertight contract. I've actually said to a team member that, frankly, if your lawyer did a contract which has got absolutely no out clause whatsoever, particularly given at the duration of three years, 
I said, basically, the lawyer should pay any penalty fees, fees there may be. And all I got was a sort of a, a half-hearted grin. <laughs> um, and now, you know, fundamentally, there is a way of getting, um, of getting Daniel uh, to step aside, and that is, frankly, called money. Um, you know, if they make him a big enough offer, I'm sure that he'll, he'll leave. And um, so I think that ultimately what uh, McLaren have to do is sort of do the sums, work out whether it's, it's worth it or not. What's the sort of cost to benefit ratio? If they believe that they can find another driver who could bring more points um, and then factor in his retainer and the payoff to Daniel into the equation, then they would do it. It's, it's that simple. Well, if Vettel does hang up his helmet at the end of the year, then Aston Martin are obviously going to be looking for a new driver. Now, we haven't heard a lot of rumours about anybody being heavily linked to Aston uh, in the last few weeks and months. If Vettel does leave the team, who do you think might be a likely candidate to replace him? Well, I've been hearing that there are um, uh, moves towards uh, talking to Mick Schumacher. You know, Mick has upped his game recently. Um, and, of course, he's got the Schumacher name, which is very, very valuable for a, um, a car company seeking some form of prestige. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're talking to Mick. Um, I don't think Mick will stay on with Haas um, unless Ferrari decide to retain Mick. And at this stage, that's, that's far from certain. Uh, for the benefit of the readers, allow me to explain that, that Mick is a Ferrari development or academy driver. They are entitled to nominate one of the drivers for the Haas team and nominated Mick. Now, there are increasing questions as to whether or not Ferrari or whether it's in the best interests of Ferrari to retain Mick in the academy, because normally those drivers end up in the main uh, team. And there's sort of doubts that, that Mick will end up there in the near future, if at all. So, you know, if that's the case, why retain him in the academy? Therefore, why would Haas then keep on the driver when, in fact, Ferrari would probably nominate somebody else for next year? Uh, they do have Kevin under contract. So I think that, that Mick is potentially a, a free agent next year. And so we're uh, continuing with the silly season then. If Mick does leave Haas, who do you think Ferrari might nominate to replace him? Um, they do have some some talents coming through. Um, I think it all depends on... on um, uh, how the guys shape out in Formula 3, Formula 2, etc. Uh, but equally, they could keep the seat open. Um, you know, they, they could basically offer it to somebody else as a, as a holding seat until one of their other academy drivers is ready. Uh, who knows? Um, you know, there, there are, there's a, a rich team of youngsters coming through at the moment, and uh, Ferrari may actually sign one of them up as the academy. Um, you know, one looks at the Formula 2 results, and there are three or four drivers up there who are certainly worthy of getting into Formula 1. Well, if we continue with uh, off-track matters now, this looks likely that it's going to be the last French Grand Prix, at least for quite a while. And now it only came back onto the calendar in 2018 after having disappeared in uh, about 2007 when it used to be at Manucourt. Why is the French Grand Prix disappearing after only rejoining relatively recently? Well, there's, there's a bit of a history to this particular uh, contract, and that is that it was one of the last signed by Bernie Eccleston before uh, Liberty um, acquired Formula One's commercial rights. The circuit is owned by a company linked to the Eccleston Family Trust. The circuit is also uh, effectively inaccessible. It's not a very good VIP type of circuit. You know, it's, it's not a destination city to go up into, into the mountains uh, well above Marseille. And so all in, it's not a particularly popular event at, at, um, 
uh, liberty level. And accordingly, the contracts come to a natural end. They are expanding elsewhere. I mean, they've added Las Vegas, they've added Miami. You know, ultimately, with a cap of 24 Grand Prix, um, that something would have to give. If you add two races in the U.S., it stands to, to reason that uh, you're going to have to look at culling races elsewhere. They want to add South Africa. So ultimately, they've had to look at who to cull in Europe. And this contract came to a natural end. Plus, of course, there were all these associated factors. So uh, as you mentioned, Vegas is coming on the calendar next year. Qatar is coming back and will be there for the foreseeable future. There are still quite a few question marks over whether or not we will have a South African Grand Prix in 2023. What's the story there, the latest? Well, Michael, as you as you know, I was down in South Africa a fortnight ago. Um, in fact, I returned last Sunday. I did have talks down there with various stakeholders and players. I did meet with Warren Schechter yesterday, who is the promoter, nephew of Jody Schechter. I did meet um, Patrice Matsepi, a very wealthy African or South African industrialist, uh, who is said to be uh, certainly underwriting the race, if not funding it in its entirety. And um, uh, at this stage, there is every push to try and get a race deal together for 2023. There are, however, enormous challenges to do it at such, when I say short notice, yes, they've been trying for many years, but it's only recently that, you know, push has really come to shove. And uh, there's a race against time. Basically, everything's got to be in place by Friday in, in Hungary. Um, all the financial guarantees, all the plans, the business plan, the business model, you name it, everything's got to be together. There's still a number of moving parts. Um, and basically, uh, Warren Schechter, Patrice Mutsepi, uh, Formula One, the ASN down there, Motorsports South Africa, who, of course, are the organizer and would have to fundamentally provide the, the race infrastructure, marshals, timing, et cetera, et cetera, administration, et cetera. And so there is a race against time. My personal feeling is that uh, I'm sort of of a mind that we a 30% chance for 23, probably a 50 or 60% chance for 24. But at this stage, it is far from a done deal, regardless of what the, um, the various social media keyboard warriors uh, seem to imply. So will we know this weekend at the Hungarian Grand Prix whether or not we'll have a South African race in 23? Um, I will certainly uh, state that we will know if we don't have a race. Um, I I don't think that they'll confirm the race this weekend, but I think that certainly if the race is off, um, uh, the word will filter through. Well, one of the races that's uh, also looking a bit precarious on the calendar is the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. So is Spa's place in 23 dependent on whether or not we have the South African race? Absolutely, yes. Um, And I think what we'll see is that if the date that has been earmarked for the South African race is unsuitable for Spa, they will slot some other race into there and give Spa that date. What am I saying? Let's assume the date is early May. Um, if that's unsuitable for Spa due to weather, etc., then what they may do is, if Imola is penned in for July, is move Imola then into May, because you could race in Imola in May, and then move Spa into July or whatever. But I do believe that, yes, if there is no South African Grand Prix, there will definitely be a Belgian Grand Prix.
And uh, given the state of uh, zero COVID in China, I think there's got to be serious questions over whether we'll see a Chinese Grand Prix as well. If that doesn't go ahead, is there another track waiting in the wings that might come in and uh, replace it? No, my understanding is that 24 race calendar next year if China goes ahead, 23 if not. Okay. Well, another development that there was a lot of talk about earlier this year, but it's gone a bit quiet is VW, Porsche, Audi uh, mooted move into F1 uh, for 2026. What's the latest on that one? Uh, Michael, what uh, of course has sort of muddied the water slightly is that on Friday, the VW group announced that the group CEO, Herbert Deese, uh, was stepping aside to be replaced by Oliver Bloomer, the, the Porsche CEO, who will now wear two caps. He will wear the cap of Porsche, and he will wear the cap of VW Group, which, of course, is the wider group, which is also Audi, Volkswagen, Seat, various commercial vehicles, Lamborghini, Bentley, Bugatti, etc. And one has to question whether his approach will be the same as that of Herbert Deese, uh, particularly when it comes to Formula One matters. Yes, Olivia Bloomer has been very supportive of the Porsche push for Formula One. In fact, I believe he was one of the prime movers. One has to question, though, whether he would like some sort of internecine um, war from Audi, for example. I do believe that um, Bloomer and the Audi CEO, um, Marcus Deusman, are not particularly close. I do believe there's been some some friction in the past, particularly when it came to product plans, etc., because in certain market market segments, they do compete against each other. So this is one to watch. Um, as far as the regulations are concerned, um, I was granted what I believe is the first uh, media interview with Shaila Ann Rao, the, um, the FI Interim Secretary General for Sport and the person driving the uh, the regulatory process. And I must say that, first of all, I found Shaila Ann to be a formidable woman, without doubt. Um, I believe she's committed to sorting out the, um, the Formula One engine regulations and, in fact, said to me that we would have the regulations approved very early in August. I've subsequently spoken to a team principal who agreed to that, saying that, yes, they'd been promised first or second week in August. He then somewhat cynically said, we'll probably be the 5th of August at 5 o'clock. We'll hear about the engine regulations because that's when we all go and shut down and that way nobody can argue with it. (laughs) And I thought that was a rather illuminating comment. But uh, frankly, um, I think that once the regulations are published, it's up to Porsche and Audi to decide which way they want to jump. So what's your gut feeling? Will we see Porsche or Audi in 26 or both of them or none at all? What do you think will happen? I'm convinced we will see Porsche, and I'm convinced we will see Porsche teaming up with uh, Red Bull. Um, I'm not so sure about Audi. Um, I think that had it not been for the boardroom upheaval last week in in Wolfsburg, Volkswagen's uh, headquarters city, that the chances were pretty strong that we would also see Audi, but I'm no longer as confident that we'll see Audi. So if Porsche and Red Bull do team up in 2026, where does that leave Honda? Because they've been quite keen to come back into the fold since they've officially stepped back. Correct. Um, you know, I think that that if we look at the Honda history, um, they have constantly regretted leaving and then sought a way back. And normally that's been fraught with difficulties and challenges and whatever. And I think that this will be um, a no different. I do believe they're now regretting having announced their departure 
Of course, they can't go back with Red Bull because Red Bull is certainly committed to going its own way, either with Porsche or with its own engine. You know, they, they've um, formed the uh, the Red Bull powertrains unit. They hard at work in Hangar 8 at the uh, Milton Keynes campus, sorting that out. So there there is no opening for Honda. It's that simple. Certainly not in Milton Keynes. Accordingly, Honda will need to go somewhere else. I have some intriguing theories about where they will go and who they will go with, but it's something that I still need to dig into. And in fact, that's one of the things that I did this past weekend. Hopefully, I can share some news about this next week in the podcast. Okay, well, we'll look forward to hearing uh, what you've got to say after Hungary. But uh, before we go, let's talk about Hungary now, the last race before the summer break. What are you expecting to see? Because uh, Charles Leclerc has seven pole positions so far this season. We know that it's difficult to overtake at Hungary and Ferrari are good in the slow corners and there's plenty of those at the Hungara ring. So have they got a good chance of victory? Um, yes, I believe they do. But equally, you know, um, so do so do Red Bull um, have a very good chance of victory. I think it will come down to, to those two. I think a lot depends on weather, a lot depends on safety cars and um, potentially even red flags. We've, we have had a lot of those in Hungary. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that really it's an unpredictable race. Very, very difficult to call. I think about the only certainty is that Red Bull and Ferrari will be in the mix in the sharp end. Uh, followed by uh, Mercedes and then potentially, you know, uh, McLaren have have had a peculiar form this year. They've sort of blown hot and cold. And I believe that that uh, if one looks at where they've blown very hot, I believe those sort of um, characteristics uh, suit the Hungarian Grand Prix. So I think that McLaren could also be in the in the mix there. Yeah, McLaren and Alpine seem to be in that battle for fourth place. Alpine actually just overtook McLaren uh, to now sit fourth overall because uh, Alonso and Ocon together scored more points than Norris and Ricardo. How do you think that battle is going to play out? Who's going to be best of the rest and finish fourth this year? Well, that's an intriguing question, Michael. Um, and in fact, as I said, McLaren, I sort of thought about, about Alpine. So thank you for, for, for raising that. Um, you know, Alonso is a warrior. He won his first Grand Prix in, in Hungary. He loves that circuit. It's effectively to him just a, an oversized go-kart circuit. I think he'll go very, very well. Let's not forget that Esteban Ocon won at that, at that circuit. Yes, it was a bit fortuitous. But again, as we said earlier on, that once a driver has had his first win, you know, he sort of moves up a gear. And, you know, he, he'd love to do that at the circuit where he'd won before. So, you know, fundamentally, I think, we're going to have a very, very tight race. Um, but I have no doubt that Ferrari and, and Red Bull will dominate the sharp end. Well, that's just about it for this week's podcast. Dieter, thank you very much for joining me once again. And we'll look forward to hearing from you again after the race in Budapest. Absolutely. Next week, Monday. Look forward to it. Thank you, Michael. Take care and have a great week until then. And if you'd like to hear more of Dieter's insights, you can follow him on Twitter at RacingLines. And don't miss Dieter's diaries from F1 Race Weekends, which are published regularly on the RacingNews365.com website. That's it for this edition of the RacingNews365.com podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back after the Hungarian Grand Prix.